This week, we were once again reminded that we live in a a broken world. Um, As most of you know, this nation was once again faced with a mass shooting tragedy. And I hope I'm not butchering the name, Umqua College in Oregon. And if you're new to our church or you've kind of been visiting, you know, we're the kind of church we just, we don't just ignore or just kind of nod and move on. We, we sit and we think about what does it mean and what does it mean for us to respond. Um, and also wouldn't surprise you that um, it's not just a national tragedy of mass shootings that should catch our attention. You and I should be cognizant of the fact that over 350 people have been killed in our very own backyard this year. Uh, We could spend every single Sunday talking about it and praying about it, literally. Just last two weekends alone, over 10 people, most of them young, kids, children killed via gun violence. Um, and so this morning, as I've been wrestling all morning, um, there are times when we spend moments during the service to pray. And this morning, I'm feeling, uh, I, I don't think we could do justice to spend just a handful of minutes and asking one or two people just to pray for the families and victims and so on and so forth of the mass shootings and also here in Chicago. So what I'd like to do is this. Let me offer this. What I'd like to do is right after the service is over, right after the service is over, for those of you that feel led and prompted to both pray and do something about it, to join me, uh, we'll meet here. We'll meet here. This is where the prayer team normally is every Sunday to pray with folks. So I'm going to ask the prayer team, as they normally do, to come on up. And these two pews, these two pews right here, Okay, I'll be here and I'm going to ask CC and the worship team to kind of wrap things up quickly. And for anybody that just feels led and burdened to pray for what happened in Oregon, but also what's been happening every single, every single week here in the city of Chicago for us to sit here and pray. We've got a newcomer's luncheon at my house and I need to head on over around 12, 12.15ish. But hopefully it'll give us a good 20, 30 minutes. And if there is prayer continually going, I'm going to ask the leaders that are here to continue to pray with and those want to pray for that. So I hope that some of you would stick around and pray with us. Pray with us. We've been um, talking about pursuing biblical community in these last four weeks or so, calling it Better Together. And, uh, and I say this periodically as kind of a... Uh, Sometimes to shock people, so you just pay attention, and other times for those of you that have been around to just kind of nod with a smile on your face. Because it's a constant theme that we talk a lot about here at church. And that is this, that when you look through the Bible, when you look through the Bible, you can't find anywhere, you can't find anywhere in the Bible that the major reason or the whole point of Christianity is Jesus came and died and rose again so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins and go to heaven. That's not the main point. 
That's not even a major theme. And I know that that shocks some of you go, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking? That's, that's the entirety of the Christian life I grew up with. And I'm here to tell you, and I tell you regularly, that that theme is, a, is an important theme in Scripture of our reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, repentance of sin, and getting our lives right with God. That's a theme. But that's not the entirety. Matter of fact, there are references to eternal life and so on and so forth. But you need to understand that in the Jewish mind, eternal life is not what you and I think of. Jewish mind, eternal life wasn't this afterlife way out there. Eternal life for many Jews was a current present reality that affected your entire being here and now. Not just your future. So instead of this whole, I've been forgiven of sin so I can go to heaven, which is important... Here's a theme that you find throughout Scripture. Let me give you one example of what salvation actually was intended to do. This is Apostle Peter, book of Acts, chapter 2. After the Holy Spirit has fallen, and he's preaching his first sermon. And here's what he says about what salvation entails. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 says, With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, and he says, Save yourselves from hell and go to... Save yourselves from... This corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 read it. You need to underline this, make note of this. Peter doesn't say, save yourselves from hell and go to heaven. He says, Exer, save yourselves from this generation. What is a generation? Generation, and it's an entire group of people, very, listen carefully, who have been enculturated with a certain value system, certain priorities, or certain worldview that shaped everything about them. It's sort of generation is and corrupt literally in Greek has a sense of twisted. Twisted. What Peter is saying is he's not talking to individual sinners, he's talking to an entire generation. By the way, um, anybody ages of 18 to 34 here this morning? Raise your hands, please. Yeah, <laughs> and the church is young 18 to 30, that's like 80% of you. If you're above, kids, if you're above 34, don't feel so old. Um, I don't. Um, you're a part of what generation? Oh, 18 to 34. You're part of the millennial. They call it the millennial generation. And when the people talk about millennial, which, by the way, you, you guys have been studied back and forth, upside down, inside, outside, like in every possible way. And there is an entire, there is an entire, there is an entire characteristic attributes of people that are part of this millennial generation. And when they talk about this generation, they talk about a value system that you have. They talk about what you prioritize. They talk about the fact that you have a certain worldview that shaped everything about how you view money, sexuality, family, vocation, spirituality, church. You are an entire generation with that entire worldview. Now check this out. Check this out. What Peter is saying is this. He says, here's where salvation is. It's not just adhering to a set of beliefs. Salvation is, first and foremost, severing of loyalty to an entire mindset of cultural values, world system, priorities that once shaped you. And it's adhering to an entirely different value system, priorities, and worldview that's no longer shaped by the culture and the generation, but is shaped by the truth and spirit of God. Let me say that again. Salvation is not, I have eternal life and I can't wait to go to heaven. 
Salvation is someone who says, I now choose to follow Jesus. And following Jesus is not earning my ticket to heaven. Following Jesus means I used to embrace this value system, these priorities, these world values shaped by the culture generation. But I I choose to follow Jesus. He's my king. And every part of my life now will be shaped by the kingdom of God and the values in the kingdom. Are you tracking with me? That's what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Is to say, I used to be shaped by the culture values of my generation, these, of, of everything, everything that shaped my. Now I choose, and this is what repentance is. It's not just saying I'm sorry for the things I've done. It's choosing to say I will no longer live and be shaped and be enculturated by the values, priorities of the world system. And, and it affects money, sexuality, race, ethnicity, culture, identity, everything. Secondly, secondly. Salvation also entails, and this is huge, what we're talking about. It's identifying with an entire group of people who now become your family. I love this quote by my favorite, one of my favorite authors, John Stott. In his commentary in Acts chapter 2, this is what he says. He says, when Peter says, save yourself from this corrupt generation, and they began to baptize, Peter's not asking for private individual conversion, but for, say the next word with me. Say it with me. Identification with the whole new community, a new humanity. These people would be transferring from a world society that they belonged to into what was a new and being saved society. This is why, this is why, if you're a Christian, you can't say Jesus yes, but the church no. You, You can't find it in the Bible. You can't say, Jesus, yes, church, no. Now, I had you say the word identification because identification is, I'll casually attend on Sundays and once in a Identification is every part of my life comes in contact with every part of your life. Where do we get this idea that you could be a Christian on your own? Where do we get this idea that the church community of people, bah, take it. Where do you get this idea? I tell you, you can't find it in the Bible. <laughs> I meet people a lot these days who go, you know, I'm into Jesus, just not into organized religion. I go, you'll love our church then because we're not really organized. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'm looking at you, Pastor Caitlin. Because that's how we hired her. We are so unorganized. We are literally depending on one person. No, that's not what we're doing. We can't do that. We can't just hire one person to know. No, we all, we all. Listen, I, I could talk about this every single Sunday, and it will barely register on some of you all because you are so, listen to me. The reason why some of the stuff that I say up here on the pulpit sounds so like, what? You have to understand how much you and I are part of our generation and how much we've been corrupted and twisted by our generation. That every single thing about our lives has been shaped not by values of the kingdom, but by the values of this world about everything. That's why many of y'all just are like, and and, and stuff that I'm going to warn you, stuff that I'm going to talk about today, you're going to be like, that just doesn't even sound right. And I'm going to ask you, it doesn't sound right because you say so, or it doesn't sound right because Scripture says so. 
It doesn't sound right because your peers say so, or it doesn't sound right because Scripture say. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, literally. So we've been talking about what this community of God looks like. And last week we talked about, we, we, we parked on Hebrews 13. We talked about one of the ways that we can be totally countercultural is to the rascal, rad, rascal. <laughs> Sorry. That's what I call my kids. Radical hospitality. <laughs> Rascal hospitality. Okay, Hebrews thirteen. Hebrews thirteen. Let's come on. Let's go. Let's go look at that. And 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 today I've got something up my sleeve that's just gonna bless you guys towards the end. I'm gonna Hebrews thirteen one it says, "Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters." Verse two. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And we said last week. Brief review for the next couple minutes that a radical, <laughs> radical, hospitable community is a community both of intimacy and openness at the same time. Two interesting balances, right? Hebrews 13 one says, and it doesn't really come out in, in English, but in Greek it says, work really hard at Philadelphia, which means love of brothers, love of sisters. Work really hard at Philadelphia, literally, working at brothers and sisters. But then verse 2, and this is, this is in Greek sort of like in your face. Verse 2, it says, work just as hard at Philozenia. Work really hard at Philadelphia, love of brothers and sisters, your own kind. And then it says, but really work hard also at Philozenia. And if that word kind of sounds familiar, it's because the word xenos meant stranger or foreigner. It's where we get the English word xenophobia. Or fear of foreigners and strangers from. And so author Hebrews is saying this. You want to be a radically different Christian community that's not shaped by the generation? Shaped by your culture? He says that community works just as hard at Philadelphia. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's just as hard at working at Philozenia. Working at love of strangers. This is what a biblical community, city within a city, is supposed to be. You ready? You and I are amazing at loving one another in Christ. Amazing. Life on life. Amazing. But just the same. Without compromising our convictions. But just the same. Without diluting the gospel. But just the same. We are just as good at loving strangers. Foreigners. What does that mean, Peter? I'll tell you exactly what it means. It means people who are not like us. People who are different from us, racially, ethnically, religiously, socioeconomically, educationally. Strangers and foreigners, let's be real honest this morning, are people, right now some of us go, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. That's who he's talking about. You know what this is supposed to be? This isn't just supposed to end that deep community. Aren't we great at loving each other? We turn right around and we go, we're just as good at loving people who disagree with us, who are unlike us, people who we don't want to be around, people that the world and the culture says, those two people aren't supposed to be together. We are just as open and loving about them as we are about loving each other. Is that us? Is that us? A radically hospitable community has this incredible intimacy 
and love for insiders and outsiders at the same time. And the philoxenia, remember I said last week, had a very specific meaning, practical meaning, which meant bring them into your home as guests. <laughs> just think about the people I just described. It's not from a distance. It's not, hey, uh, it's come into the house. Come on in. Come on in. Four. Author of says, by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And just real quick, real quick, because I said this last week, and I got a bunch of emails from people going, thank you for saying that, thank you for saying that. The whole, when you do that, and you invite these strangers into your home, into fellowship, when author of says, then you're entertaining strangers, you might be entertaining God or angels without even knowing it. He's referencing Genesis 18, where Abraham entertained three strangers and at the divorce, he found out they were God and his angels. And, and, and I said this last week, one of my favorite commentators, William Lane, in, Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, he says this, for Christians, expectation is that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange between guests and hosts. This expectation lends to hospitality a sacramental quality. What is a sacramental quality? What is a sacrament? Lord's Supper, baptism. But what's involved? It's common stuff. Lord's Supper, Michael, Pastor Michael, buys regular bread. He doesn't go to some special holy, sacred bread. He buys regular bread, buys regular Welch's grape juice. Baptism, we're going to baptize some folks next week. It's just regular water. It's not holy water, just regular water. But here's the thing, both in Lord's Supper and baptism, there is a supernatural element of God's grace coming into people's lives when it's dedicated by God. And this is just mind-boggling to me because what the author of Hebrews is actually implying is this. When he says, when you do that, you might be entertaining God and his angels. He's saying common stuff. When you take somebody out for coffee and just listen to their problems, you're thinking, I'm just taking you out for coffee. Or as it happened this week, when you drive one of your friends to the hospital because they're getting tests and they're freaking out and you're just waiting in the hospital room. Or when you open your house to host small groups and have people come over. Or when you invite someone who's new down the street or in your apartment for a meal. Check this out. You might be entertaining angels without knowing it. And put it this way. Through that very common ordinary act, somehow God says, his supernatural power and grace could come flooding into that other person's life. That just to me is astounding. That means that college students, college kids, when you make really good peanut butter and jelly, like, and you use the right kind of peanut butter, it has to be Jif crunchy kind, okay? Not Skippy. I'm not into Skippy. It has to be Jif crunchy, okay? It has to have a bite to it, okay? Jelly, you could use whatever. Um, when you... When you when you make peanut butter, listen, when you make peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you invite someone into your tiny little dorm room, check this out. God could actually use that to minister to that person. See, some of us get so paralyzed because we make this a massive deal, right? We're like, I have to cook. And by the way, for those of us that are like massive deal, like until I have mass, you know, cleaned the house. Da, da, sometimes I go, that's more about us making, uh, wanting to make a good impression on other people than it is about them. Can I get an amen to that? You know what? We already know your house ain't that clean anyway. We already know. Why do some of us, seriously, do you know our, our church would be revolutionized if every single one of us opened our home as is and invited guests in and just ministered. Do you know just a simple meal? It's, 
Astounding. Promise. Uh, let's, let's, let's keep going. There, are four, there were four elements to, 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 to hospitality in that culture. And, 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 and here's what they were. First of all, there was invitation. And you need to understand this invitation. What do I mean? Um, when you entered a city and you were a traveler, weary wanderer, traveler, you, you didn't just randomly walk into a city. A lot of the cities had gates. You walked and you stood outside the city gate and you waited. Or you waited by a well. You see this in Genesis 19, 26. Acts chapter 16, 17, Philippi. You just waited outside the city gate. And somebody would come out to the city gate, to the well, where a group of strangers and wanderers would wait. And you were invited in. That's how it worked. Okay? Somebody had to invite you. Second part of this was screening. Before somebody invited you in, they interviewed you. Who are you? Where are you from? And if you're smart, you carry some papers that said, here's where I was from. Then the next thing was, you then provided. If you're the host, there was, there was provision. You cleaned their feet. You provided a meal for them. And then last was departure, which is you left the next day. At most, you stayed two days. You didn't stick around for a week. The joke last week, that's what hospitality worked back then. People didn't overstay their welcome, okay? You left the next day. That's what hospitality, and it was enormous back then. God comes along. He's standing on Mount Sinai. He gives Moses the law, and then he extrapolates and expounds on, here's what my radical community will now do about hospitality. And then he says these words. The Lord your God is the God of the gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the stranger by giving him food, by giving him clothing. So show your love for the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God comes and he goes, you think that's what hospitality is in your culture? I'm going to expand it, basis and scope. First he says, here's why you need to be hospitable. Ready? He says, because you were once them. He says, do you remember when you were in bondage and oppression? Do you remember what that felt like? He says, do you remember after you were free from Egypt, how you wandered in the wilderness desert for 40 years? Do you remember how if I didn't provide food and shelter for you, you would have died out there? God goes, you were once them. Yeah, yeah, you, you were once them. Paul Apostle Paul pushes this into you and me in the New Testament, and he says the following words. For through him, we both have access to God, Father, by one spirit. Consequently, you, you, you and me, new community, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you now are fellow citizens with God's people, and guess what? We're sons and daughters of God's household. Do you know why you and I need to take hospitality seriously? He says, because you and I, are the ultimate examples of people who are once shown hospitality. Do you know why you and I can't just shrug this off and go, you know, I just don't have the gifts for hospitality. I just, I'm not just hospitable. God says, here's the reason why we need to take this as seriously as we take anything else. And I am being serious when I say we need to take this seriously as anything else. He says, fundamentally, at the core of your identity as a Christian is that you were once strangers and foreigners and, hello, enemies of God. But I brought you in. But I brought 
you in. Guys, just think about that for a moment and think about if you really realize that, you would say, you know, I don't have time for hospitality. You know, I just have the gift of hospitality. You know, think about what this means when God says, you were once strangers, foreigners, without food, without clothing, out in spiritual darkness, and I, by grace and mercy, brought you in. I brought you in. The basis is God goes, you were once them. And the scope of it, guys, this is where it gets hard. You ready? He says, he says who, who is the stranger? He says, the orphans and the widows in Deuteronomy 10. And that literally he's talking about the poorest and the most vulnerable among you. He's talking about the immigrants. He's talking about the refugees. He's talking about people you might not normally be open to. People of different race, ethnicity, culture, socioeconomic status. And God says, here's who the strangers are. You ready? It's not some random visitor who comes from out of town and stays for a couple days. God says, strangers that you're hospitable to look out into the city of Chicago, look out into the world. It's the immigrant. It's the refugee. It's the people that socially, culturally, ethnically, you don't have anything to do with. It's people that because you have religious differences you don't have anything to do with. He says, all of them, all of them are strangers. All of them are strangers. And what does it mean to be hospitable to them? It's not less than bringing people into your home. Let me say that clearly. It's not less than bringing people into your home. It's not less than bring. By the way, can I just say this? this? This sermon is so hard for me to preach because you know what? Some of you know this. Your pastor, your pastor hates having people over at his house. I know, and I'm, I'm, hosting, I'm hosting a newcomer's luncheon today. But let me explain, let me explain. I'm just like you. Let me explain, let me explain. I'm just like you. You know what that, that means? After a long day of work, home is sanctuary for me. After a long day of work, I just want to go home, and I just want my kids to jump on me. I just want my wife to jump on me. I, I just want my, you know, I just want my kids to jump. I just want to, I just, you know, and I just want to be in my comfortable clothes and kick back, and I just want to watch TV and just zone. That's me. I'm just like you. But you know what? I, I, I'm realizing, I'm just, Peter, how can you preach this to your church and not give access and permission that anybody who's hurting will want be in need, could drop by your house anytime. It's not less than bringing people into your home. It's still that, but it's much more. And David Verdin, thank you for stealing my thunder because this is what Jesus says about what it means to be hospitable. He puts tangible things to it. Look at what he says. For I was hungry. He gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. He gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was a stranger. He invited me and I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. He makes it plain. He says, this is what hospitable means. It's take your possessions, take your things, take your money, take your home. Take your influence, take your networks, take whatever it is that you have, and you spend it on their behalf. Take all that you have, and you invest it. You pour it back. You pour it back into the human community. 
so that it leads to universal flourishing. And oh, by the way, Jesus goes off. When you do that to them, you're doing it to who? To Jesus. Author of Hebrews picks up on this. Look at verse 3. He says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. What? And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Those who are mistreated literally in Greek means the oppressed, the victims of social injustice. And I talked about this guy three weeks ago. There was a guy named Lucian of Samosada who was a satirist in first century. And he was a major critic of Christianity and Christians. And he talks about, in one of his stories, he tells about, guy, about a guy named Proteus who was a Christian leader in Palestine. And Proteus was a convert to Christianity in Palestine. And Proteus was imprisoned for his faith. And Samosada, he, and, and Lucian writes about this. He says the Christians not only protested the arrest and tried to get Proteus released, but when they couldn't get Proteus released, some leaders of the Christian community in Palestine actually went inside the prison and stayed with him. This is a non-Christian Critic of Christianity and Christians writing about Christians. They stayed in prison and slept and ate right alongside him. There was this tremendous concern for social justice in the early church. But check this out. Look at verse (laughs) 4. Marriage should be honored by all. And marriage bed be kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You know what adultery means. Sex with somebody you're not married to. Being sexually unfaithful to, you, to your wife or your husband. Sexually moral, though, is, a, is another word, more general term that meant any sex outside of marriage. So check this out, you guys. Here's the early Christians. You ready? <laughs> The early Christians, on the one hand, were radically concerned about the poor, generous with their money, deeply concerned about social justice. And on the other hand, they were absolutely committed to the biblical sex ethic of faithfulness in marriage and abstinence outside. And the world thought they were weird. And we live in interesting times. you know why? Because today we live in a culture where if you're a follower of Jesus... And you are deeply committed, not just with your words, with your life. Issues of social justice, the poor, the immigrant, the refugees. And at the same time, you are just as passionate, just as passionate about biblical sex ethic, of faithfulness within marriage and absence without. People will think you're weird. People will go, wait a minute, are you a liberal? Or a conservative? Are you a Democrat? Or you're a Republican. Do you watch MSNBC? Or do you watch Fox News? And the answer of Christians is, I am neither. I'm a follower of Jesus. The answer is, when Jesus comes, he's not returning on an elephant or a donkey. He's riding a chariot. Are you with me? See, I knew that this would resonate with you because here's the thing. You and I are being forced into a mold. 
I know our church and the city and culture, you and I are being forced in the mold, and that is this. Our culture goes, if you're a Christian, you care a lot about sex ethics. You care a lot. You're a matter of fact, Christians are obsessed with sexual ethics. By the way, for those of us that are tempted to be, let me just remind you. Jesus said 10 times more things about greed and materialism than he did about sex. I just want to throw that out there. He says, if you're a Christian, you are absolutely obsessed with sexual ethics. Or, if you're a Christian, you care a lot about social injustice and the poor. And they want to go choose one or the other. And the Bible says, you don't choose one or the other. We're both. Can I get an amen? Even if you're not living it, if you agree with this, say amen. I'm telling you, church, This is what new community is, and this is what causes us to stand out. Your peers and your culture will say, a Christian today chooses one or the other, but a Christian who comes along and says, let me me check this out. I care just as much, not my words, but my life as well, about issues of social injustice. I care about the poor. I care about issues of race. I care about issues of injustice. I care about all the things that's affecting the crisis of refugees today. But at the same time, I believe in the biblical sex ethic. That God intended sex to be within marriage and anything outside of that is not in accordance with his will. And people will look at you and go, but you're not quite. I can't fit you into category defy to which you go, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. (laughs) Is this discomfort in here, Michael? What is this? I'm not done yet. I'm going to keep going. Because here's the thing. And just give me just a couple more minutes. You need to understand, you need to understand, you need to understand, our culture sees Christians as caring a lot about sex ethics, or you care a lot about social injustice, but the Bible says you don't, you don't, there's no dichotomy, you don't compartmentalize, you don't, and by the way, if, I'm just going to say, just a couple more minutes, and the, the following things are going to seem so shocking to you, and you need to understand the reason why it's going to be so shocking to you is because you and I have been Western Christian culturized, and we have embedded in us a system of individualism. You go, where did I get that from? Here's a 30-minute primer on the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment happened in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. It's where we get our Western culture from, and part of Enlightenment Western culture is it gave us the gift, the gift, I'm being sarcastic, of Western individualism. Individualism, which means you and I today live, and our mindset is my individual rights trump anything of the family, community, or whatever. So it's my body, my money, my. And the Bible comes along and says the gospel couldn't disagree more. You ready? Your money is not your money, it's God's money. I know this is so uncomfortable. It's God's money. God says, I gave it to you. It's a gift. You're just a steward. You're just a manager of it. And I don't want you to use it just for your selfish needs. I need you to use it for human flourishing. I need you to take it. And because I've given it to you, I need you to go to places that are weak and broken and falling apart. And I need you to invest it so that it leads to wholeness and universal flourishing. That's what money is for. It's not just for your individual needs. And check this out. Sex, in the same way, is not just for you. Bible says sex wasn't given to you just for your own pleasure and happiness. Sex was also given to you as a gift for human community building and human flourishing. Are you listening to me? You and I, this whole sexual, individual sexual expression, do whatever you want to. The Bible says that God created sex. God created sex. 
as a sacred thing for the bounds of marriage, man, woman, in the context of marriage, and to be used to build up human flourishing so that it could strengthen families, which is the basis for all culture. For those of you that are sitting there going, but that just doesn't sound, I just disagree. I just want to gently push back and go, do you think what you think because you've studied scripture and you've wrestled over it or because of what our culture society says? Hmm? It's so hard for us to go, my money's not my own? No, it's not. My sexuality's not my own? No, it's not. It's been given to you by God to you to universal flourishing and community building. And you go, well, where do we get that from? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus didn't consider his body his own. He gave it up for the sake of us and to bring us into his household. His wealth, Philippians 2. He laid aside all of his rights, all of his privileges, and became a servant, even servant unto death. So that why? So that you and I could be welcomed into God's community and God's household. By the way, if you're sitting there going, well, who will, can I just tell you something? Do you realize that parts of Asia, Latin America, and Africa didn't go through the Enlightenment? So they don't struggle with this thing that we struggle with. For them, for them, for them, their view of sex and family, they look at us and go, sexual expression, do whatever you want to. Who thinks that? They think you and I are crazy. Same thing with money. There are parts of the world that didn't go through enlightenment of Eastern, Western Europe and influence. So before you kind of get this culture elitism and go, well, that's just backwards thinking, we (laughs) might be in the minority in the larger landscape of things in terms of how we think about sex and money. Can I get an amen? Okay, then. My question to you is, who's molding you? Who's forming you? Your generation, your peers, who is forming your value system? Who is forming your priorities? Who is forming your worldview? Who? What? What does this mean? Hospitable, hospitality, it's an attitude of heart and a practice. Let me just be real practical here, and then I need to get to the gospel and Jesus, which gives us ultimate motivation. What does this mean practically? And your pastor isn't the best at practicality, so I just want to throw this out there, okay? One, invite people into your home. If you're taking down notes, I got to invite someone to my house. I got to invite someone to my house. I got to invite some. And here's the thing. We live in Chicago. You invite someone to your house, they're going to be like, what you selling? To which you go, I'm not selling anything, man. A third of them will think you're weird or accuse you. A third of them will be like, nah, but a third of them might come. Can I just show off our church a little bit? Can I? There's a couple named Shannon and Mike Crable, and other people do this. Do you know that they open their house every Friday night, and they call it Open Friday Night? You know what they do? They just let anybody in the community church just come over. And for the summer, they just grilled. And when it gets cold, Shannon was like, we're going to go inside the house and cook chili. It's a family that's literally just opened their home once a week for anybody to come over. And they said, Pastor Peter, you could tell anybody. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. How many of you guys even remotely, regularly invite people into your home? Misty, you don't, right? Why not? Because you like your space. Me too. Two. 
Invite colleagues, friends, and neighbors into your spiritual home. What do I, what spiritual home? Small groups, various ministries in the city you're involved in, Sunday worship. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, one of the best ways to bribe people is to go, hey, come with me to church, and I'll buy you lunch after. <laughs> the person that just did that, is that because you invited somebody or you were the invitee? Is it? Third, plan for unplanned times. I tell you what, some of the most sacred, best times in my life have happened when people came over or something happened spontaneously. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? See, you and I are like this. <laughs> I'm guilty of it. I right, take out your phone. Take out my phone. Okay. Two weeks out. Three weeks out. There's something about let's put away our phones. How about we just are so accountable and so open that unplanned times where people can drop by are happening regularly. Fourth, host a small group in your home. Enough said. Five, be an usher or a greeter. Can I tell a little dirty little secret about our church? You ready? Do you know that vast majority of the people conclude or make conclusions about our church before they even sit in the pew and a note is sung and a word is preached? What, what are you talking about, Peter? They literally, new visitors and guests, they make conclusions about our church from the moment they park or they get off the CTS and they walk. Oh, this church is friendly. Oh, that person gave me a dirty look. That person looks really unhappy. That, they are making conclusions about this church before they even sit down. So my challenge to our church has always been, what kind of a church are they sensing and experiencing? Why do I say this? Two of the most important ministries in our church, I don't even exaggerate, more important than me, more important than worship, are the people that greet the people that are walking into this church for the first time after not being a part of church for seven years. Do you know how scary it is for people who don't go to church or have not been to a church in years to come back to church? Do you know how, do you know how scary it is? And do you know how much it means to people when the first impression they get is someone who goes, Welcome. We need ushers and greeters desperately. People who will, in a simple way on a Sunday morning, welcome weary, hurting, broken, disillusioned. I'm going to give this church, I'm going to give church, Christianity, God, one more chance. Five or six. Give of your time, talents, and ties to all the ministries out in the city and work with the immigrants, homeless, the weak, and vulnerable. And, at, and in two minutes, I'm going to give you a very practical way of how you can do this by inviting someone that I'm getting to know really, really well, and she's going to be a wonderful blessing to our church, Sarah Ardema of World Relief, who works with refugees. So you guys will hear very practically. But where do we get the motivation to do this? Let's, let's finish. Let's finish. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. So keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How many of y'all are content with what you have? Liars. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm happy for you. Okay. Keep you content with what you have because God has said, God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So verse six, so say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In order to live this kind of radical hospitality I'm talking about, in order to live this radical hospitality I'm talking about, you have to be freed from money. The love of money, the desire for money, worry over money. 
And the Bible says that could only happen, it could only happen if you are, maybe like a quarter of our church, truly content. If you're truly sitting here this morning, whether you have a lot or a little, going, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm not anxious. I'm good. I'm not desirous. No, I'm good. I'm good. Having things and stuff, it's not important to my security and significance. It's not. It's no longer emotionally, psychologically sort of devastating if I have it or if I don't. I'm, I'm content. I'm content. Where do you get that from? You have to know that God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you know what's awesome about this? You can't really tell in English, but do you know the first phrase? is literally saying, I will never, never leave you. It's two negatives. And then the second clause says, I will never, never Never leave you. Let me retranslate that verse. It's God going, I will never once, never twice, never three times, never four times, never five. It's five negatives. I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Is that good news? See, y'all read that verse. I'll never leave and never. God's going over the top grammatically. If he was me, he'd be like, I will never, 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 never leave you. That's exactly what he's doing. He is trying to pound it into your hearts. You think I'm going to leave you, forsake you? I will never, 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 never. Well, how do I know he's going to do that, Peter? Did you catch the last two verses? <laughs> Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Oh, if you've been tracking, all of a sudden now the gospel's like, ding, ding. What did Jesus do? Verse 13, let us follow him outside the gate, bearing the disgrace he bore. Do you know what outside the gate means? This is the reason why we don't do hospitality. It's costly. It's expensive. But we will never, ever do it in the way that it's been costly and is expensive as Jesus. Think about his life and what it cost him for hospitality. He's born in a feeding trough for crying out loud. In his earthly life, he goes, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man, what? Has no place to lay his head. And when he's crucified, he is crucified. This is intentional. Outside the city gate. And oh yeah, on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you and I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. God just promised that he'd never leave or forsake us. What's he doing to Jesus? He's doing to Jesus what we deserve so that you and I will never, ever, ever have to cry out, why have you forsaken me? You ever wonder why he's crucified outside the city gate? The son of God left God's household, became a stranger and a foreigner so that strangers and foreigners could become sons and daughters of God. 
If you believe that, he says, follow him outside the city gate. Did you hear that? What does it mean? Open your stinking eyes and begin to observe and look. Who's hurting? Who's lonely? Who's confused? Who always sits by themselves? Who's always coming here looking weary? Who looks like they're hurting? That's one of the hardest things for me every Sunday is I look out and I see it in your faces and I'm going, but we are the body. Does our body see and observe and look? What does it mean to follow outside the city gate? That means that we count the cost, our homes, our money, our time, our resources, knowing that Jesus, our Savior, paid the cost infinitely greater than you and I will ever pay. So let us follow him outside the city gate. Sarah Artema. Can we have the lights, please? We're going to turn on the video. Thank you. Sarah Artema. Come on up. Everybody, everybody, please look up here. You've got you to gotta see this. It's only two minutes. It's only two minutes. It's only two minutes long. You've got to see this. You've got to see this. I've asked Sarah to share just real quick what she does. What a gift for our church to have folks like Sarah. And there's many of you in our midst like this who could help us figure out what it means to respond to this. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about what you do for World Relief and ways that new community, your church family, could be involved. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for giving me a chance to share today. Um, we're a Christian refugee resettlement agency. Um, we're up in Albany Park, and um, we really try to bring churches into the work that we do with refugees and immigrants. Um, so I want to start by sharing a really quick story about... Um, something that happened to me last fall. So I'll start with that and then just share a couple ways that you all can think about getting engaged. Um, and then I'll be back um, downstairs at the end of the service where you can talk with me more. So Ali had stopped in the office to ask his employment coordinator a question. He was an Iraqi man in his, in his 30s and one of the friendliest clients I'd met. He had come to the United States by himself, eagerly waiting for the day when the rest of his family could join him here. Ali worked hard, taking on extra shifts at his factory job and studying during his free time. He was learning both English and Spanish, considering the one just as important as the other in order to communicate in the US. It was just a couple of days before Thanksgiving, and I wondered if Ali had a place to spend the holiday. My husband and I would be sharing a Thanksgiving meal with family in a nearby suburb. I started to wonder if I should invite Ali to come to our Thanksgiving dinner. I was concerned that our family members might ask him inappropriate questions about Islam, ISIS, or the war in Iraq. Would they be sensitive to his limited English skills or potential dietary restrictions. After going back and forth for a few minutes, I finally decided I would invite Lee, concluding that the cross-cultural experience would be beneficial for everyone. Yes. Do you plan to celebrate Thanksgiving, Ali? I asked. Without missing a beat, Ali responded, oh yes, my neighbors and coworkers and friends and family will be getting together to share a big meal. Do you want to join us? Um, so I think that, short, that story just shows how um, working with refugees really has taught me what community looks like. Um, they really know so much more about community than we do here in the U.S. <laughs> um, so here are a couple ways that you all can get involved. Um, the first is to pray. Um, I think working in refugee resettlement, we see all the time that the need is just too great for us. Um, and you have to think about the hope that Christ offers. Um, so we have some prayer guides that are available um, specifically for the Syrian refugee crisis that you can go through. 
Um, and we have ongoing prayer guides available too, so come see me downstairs about that. Um, you can also give, of course. Um, please think about giving financially um, and give generously to support World Relief and other organizations' operations. Um, but also, we um, here at World Relief Chicago, um, we resettle about 375 refugee families every year. Mm. And um, part of the process of that is that we furnish um, apartments and give them the items that they need when they first arrive. So um, we have families um, here in the U.S. from churches offer good neighbor kits to families. Um, so we have pamphlets about how to, um, what the items would be that you'd give to a family to just um, welcome them and help fill their, um, their home with the things that they need to get started here. Um, third, please advocate. Um, we're limited to what we can do here as a church um, by the number of refugees that can come here. Right now the cap is, um, it's been increased to, um, we're going to receive 85,000 refugees next year, which is a step up from 70,000 that we had this year. Um, but World Relief and other groups are advocating for that to be increased um, to at least 200,000, um, including 100,000 Syrians. Um, there are about 4 million Syrians right now who are displaced. So. <laughs> Even if it were to get increased to 200,000, that still um, is nowhere near what's needed. But um, right now, what it's at currently around 85,000, it's just not enough. So please do call your representatives, um, let them know that we, um, we need to welcome refugees here. And finally, um, we love to invite people to actively engage with, with, church, or with our families um, in volunteering opportunities. So we have lots of short-term volunteer opportunities, lots of long-term volunteer opportunities. Um, we have a program called the Good Neighbor Team Program where you can actually um, kind of adopt a refugee family and walk alongside them for the first four months that they're here in the U.S. Um, so that's a really great way to get involved. Um, yeah, so let me just close by saying that at World Relief, we really believe that the church is a hope for the world. Um, and we know that the work we do, we can't do without the help of churches. So. Um, yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to share. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing. Can we give her a big hand? Thank you. Thank you. As Sarah mentioned, she'll be downstairs. There's a table set up, world relief material. I want to encourage any of you before you head out to stop by. I'm going to pray for the offering. We're going to get up. We're going to give our tithes and offering. We're going to we're going to have Carlton lead us in the last song. And as soon as the song is over, and I pray the prayer of benediction, these two pews up here, if there's more people, we'll open up more pews. We're going to get together for the next 10, 15 minutes afterwards. Just pray. Pray for the tragedy in Oregon. Pray for the tragedies and ongoing tragedies here in our own city. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Seeing that video to me, God, is a reminder of where we once were spiritually, where we once were strangers, foreigners, and aliens, and wanderers without hope, without home. Yeah, through Jesus, we've been welcomed in into your very home and made sons and daughters.
God, this morning, we give our tithes. We give our offering. We give. For you have been gracious, generous with us. Thank you for laying aside your privileges and your rights. Becoming a servant, even servant, obedient unto death. For it is that grace and that mercy and that salvation that saves us. So we give joyfully, cheerfully, gratefully, worshipfully.